You're listening to episode 140 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Venema introduces us to a very sobering topic in the study of theology, the doctrine of eternal punishment or hell. Today, he'll present this doctrine, remark on what the confessions say about it in a traditional view, and introduce some popular objections to it, most notably universalism and annihilationism, or what he calls conditional immortality. I'll begin by reading this passage at verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life." As I was intimating at the beginning, I've never in my life, I was just thinking about that before this evening's class, actually addressed either in a sermon or by way of a a lecture or a class such as this, solely the topic that is before us, namely of hell and what becomes of those who are under God's judgment uh, in the final state. And it is a fearful subject. I'm not convinced that we often or very often uh, take the time to contemplate. We can be very glib and very quick to prove our orthodox credentials and saying, well, we affirm, the Bible clearly teaches, but have you ever actually spent any time in reflection on the topic that is before us? Certainly in our day, And even within the church, it has become a very unpopular topic and even one that is deliberately either avoided or openly denied. What has become 
the book I mentioned to you before, Michael Rogers, from whom I stole the general topic for our classes together, What Happens After I Die. I often do that, but I'm told that book titles are not copyrighted. The book is copyrighted, but not the title, and so I may use it. Uh, but it's what he calls in our day the strange disappearance, uh, virtual vanish, banishment of the doctrine of hell. Now, it's probably not a good thing, gets us off on a bad footing, perhaps. But just to illustrate that, I want to read a statement regarding the doctrine of hell, eternal punishment, by a very well-known and influential evangelical author by the name of Clark Pinnock, now deceased. But in one of his writings where he openly repudiates the doctrine, he says the following, and listen very carefully because he uh, pulls no punches. As a matter of fact, I think he grievously offends. Uh, let me just say that because it's a somewhat shocking statement, but I think it does uh, call to our attention the point I'm making about the unpopularity of the topic that we're addressing. This is what he says. Let me say at the outset that I consider, this is at the beginning of the essay, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures? Now, I pause to insert if you were a class at the seminary, you'd not be surprised by my pausing to insert. This is an offensive statement because uh, he's deliberately putting things in the worst possible fashion, especially using the kind of language inflicting everlasting torment and so on. But I think this is reflective of a very, of a very strong sentiment that is growing even among evangelical Christians in our day. Surely a God who would do such a thing, he goes on, is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards, and by the gospel itself. Does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? And he goes on. It's too painful to read the whole of it, but I do think it captures rather well and very forcefully and I think even offensively uh, his opposition to the doctrine. Let me just say this very quickly. Uh, if what he is saying were true, then the firm, foremost offender in the Word of God is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. I just read a passage from Matthew 25, which communicates, testifies of our Lord's teaching regarding the ultimate judgment and separation that will obtain by God's righteousness between those who enter into eternal life and those who enter into everlasting punishment. I want to, I've read this rather offensive statement to be a little bit provocative in terms of putting the question, what do the scriptures teach regarding the question, what becomes of the unrighteous, the impenitent, those who obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and do not find salvation through faith in him as the only mediator? Uh, I would like to begin by pointing out that historically, 
Within the Christian church and the Reformed Presbyterian churches more particularly, there has been little debate or disagreement or uncertainty about the Scripture's answer to our question. And I've got two quotes there in my notes just to kind of orient us. These are statements of what the church confesses is taught in the Word of God. And so what we'll be doing tonight is asking, is indeed this confession faithful in its summary of what the Scriptures teach? And the first statement is from Belgic Confession, Article 37, where it's stated, this is an article dealing with the final judgment and the ultimate outcome. Therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect. Because then, that is at the final judgment, their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be made known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and shall become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So far the Belgic Confession. Then from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, the second section, this is what is said, The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy, in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, there are all kinds of scriptural allusions and even direct quotations from specific passages in the Word of God, some of which we'll be looking at as we go along this evening, in both of those statements. But of one thing we can be sure, they both, each in their own way, and in many respects in a very similar way, make very clear that there is another side to the story of the good news of God's saving grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And that is, in the instance of those who do not, by faith, find themselves as the Spirit works that faith in them through the gospel, join to Christ, and through Christ, find salvation, fellowship, reconciliation with God, the promise of eternal life, the promise of the resurrection, the assurance of all of the promises that are made to us that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The other side of the story is all those who are not saved, who do not find in Christ through faith a mediator who can restore them to fellowship with God, take up the burden of their sins, pay the wages of those sins, secure for them eternal life. There awaits them the fearful prospect 
of everlasting death under the felt impression of God's holy displeasure and just penalty against them, separated from his presence, cast away from communion with God and with those who are God's, and everlastingly experiencing that punishment which is their due. Indeed, a fearful and hard even to contemplate prospect for them. Now, if that's the historic position of the Christian church, I want to, before, I'm just sort of setting the stage here, before looking at some passages in the Word of God and some questions, arguments, back and forth, objections to the doctrine of hell and biblical uh, considerations that answer those objections, I do want to mention for the sake of our reflection on this topic, a couple of alternative views. If one denies the doctrine of eternal punishment, the doctrine of hell, as the destiny of those subject to Christ's judgment and consigned under God's wrath to separation, casting away into outer darkness, what alternatives are open to us? Well, one alternative, of course, would be universalism. And there have been in the history of the church some theologians, some, not very many, a very distinct minority. There was a famous teacher in the early church by the name of Origen in the Eastern Church, uh, a Greek father, very influential writer in the history of the church, who taught actually a doctrine of universalism, Christian universalism, in the most radical expression. He was condemned by an early church council for this as teaching heresy as that which is outside the boundaries of what Scripture permits. He even went so far as to say, think of Paul's language in Ephesians 1, through Christ God is summing up all things under his headship, reconciling all things whether they be in heaven or upon the earth. He taught a doctrine of universal reconciliation. Ultimately, all persons without exception, even evil angels and the arch enemy of God and his people, Satan himself, according to Origen's teaching, a teaching of universal reconciliation, would find salvation. Everything would be brought to a state of communion with God and an ordering of all creatures under God as those whom God has now saved from all the consequences of sin. Universalism can also... At least this can be said for origin. And those Christians, historically, who have embraced some or another form of universalism, that at the end of the day, everyone is saved. He believed that all are saved. It was a, in that sense, if I may use such language, and you might say, well, it's not biblical. How could it then be Christian? But it was a kind of Christian universalism because he acknowledged that it was on the basis of God's mercy and grace and the work of Christ on our behalf that all are saved. So that's a doctrine that says we're not saved because we do things that merit, according to justice, the reward of eternal life. No, salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ, but the Christ in question has precisely made satisfaction for the sins of all, and God will ensure that all come to have a part a benefit from that great saving work. Head for head, all will be saved. Now, there's, of course, alternative versions of universalism. They abound today. I suspect that we live in an age where 
universalism is, in a way, the default position. I think it's R.C. Sproul who has this lovely uh, way of describing the typical sentiment of most North America Americans upon the death of a loved one. They believe, he says, in a doctrine of justification by death. All you need do in order to enter into God's presence and enjoy eternal life is that you should die. Because no one would want to suggest it would be impolite at a funeral that the deceased is in hell or that the deceased has not obtained eternal life in fellowship with God. And so you get a whole variety of pluralistic universalisms which teach that there are many ways to God. You might find God through the one you call Christ, Lord and Savior. Others might find their way to God by some other path. There are many roads that people travel. We all travel one or another of those roads, but our destination, however difficult it may be to define it or to describe it, is the same. We shall all find some kind of bliss and happiness beyond this life in the life that is to come. Well, that's clearly not in accordance with scriptural teaching, as we shall see. Now, in addition to such universalisms, which are all in their own way denials of any kind of doctrine of eternal punishment or the loss of salvation on the part who do not find salvation through Christ, there are in our day also many who are advocating what is called, pardon me for the theologian's language, annihilationism. Rather than saying that those who are not saved experience in the life to come in the body through the resurrection of the just and the unjust, that is the unjust, that they experience in the life to come being under God's holy and just punishment for their unbelief, their impenitence, their sin, The doctrine says that if you are not saved, salvation is not universal. Only those who through faith in Christ obtain eternal life will ultimately be saved. And that means that in the case of those who do not obtain eternal life, their destiny is that they should be punished through God's causing them to cease to exist. Now, if I may add another phrase, some more technical language, that's a view that takes most commonly among some evangelical and contemporary uh, Christian teachers the name of conditional immortality. And you say to me, Dr. Venner, what does that mean, conditional immortality? Well, sort of just break it apart. Those only who meet the gospel demand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall find in him life and deliverance from the consequences of your sin. The wages of sin are death. The wrath of God, having been by Christ's sacrifice and uh, endurance under God's wrath of that which was our due, you are released, rescued from that consequence of your sin. So if you... By a faith, either 
affected by your own free will and cooperation with the offer of the gospel if you're Arminian in your orientation, or by that faith worked alone according to God's saving purpose by the Holy Spirit through the gospel word that brings you to embrace the gospel promise, that condition demanded the gospel and its preaching having been met, you will obtain eternal life. But if not, if unbelieving, if perhaps impenitent, if you turn to God's overture of grace in the gospel in its proclamation, a deaf ear or a disobedient ear, you will not find life, but you will be annihilated, that is, destroyed. You will cease to be. You will not continue to have in the life to come any kind of existence whatsoever. You will be snuffed out in the sense of there will no longer be a you. The only persons who will, beyond the day of judgment, endure, or rather I should say, enjoy life, endure is absolutely the wrong word, enjoy life in communion with God through Christ are those who have believed and find life in Christ. Well, I'm clearing the deck here. I'm hoping to get to the topic, which is what do the Scriptures precisely teach, but we have to have a few of these definitions in our mind. What I've done thus far is given you two statements from the Confession, where it becomes very clear that the church historically has believed the Bible teaches that those who are not saved according to God's purpose through the work of Christ will suffer everlastingly the just penalty that is due them for their sins in hell. Now, as alternatives to that view, I've suggested to you, you could go the route of universalism, which has great appeal, or you could go the route of a route taken by many contemporary evangelical theologians of saying that the destiny of those who are not saved is the cessation of their existence. They are annihilated under the judgment of God and they do not enjoy existence of any kind subsequent to that act of God in causing them and their existence to come to an end. Now, one last uh, subject to to address before we look more directly at some of the passages in the Word of God that bear on our our question, I want to uh, just quickly note with you that the objections to the doctrine of hell, as it has historically been confessed in the church, can be categorized under two heads. They're related, but they can be distinguished if it helps you to keep them in the forefront of your mind. There are objections that are what I would call expressly biblical. These are objections to the traditional understanding of hell that are based upon the alleged teaching of the Word of God regarding what becomes of the unbelieving upon death and in the context of the final judgment. And there are three. It's not too difficult to remember. There's two kinds of objections. First are biblical, three of those. And then I'm going to suggest to you a second kind of objection, which is more expressly theological. And I'll identify three of those. The three biblical objections are, what about the language in the Word of God that the destiny of the wicked, the disobedient, the unbelieving, those who don't find salvation through Christ and life everlasting in Him, 
They are destroyed. Their end is destruction. Doesn't that suggest that they cease to be? The very idea of the destruction of something is its undoing, its elimination, its cessation from existence of any sort or kind. It goes out of existence by virtue of it having been destroyed. That's one of the arguments, the first one. The second argument is the biblical imagery regarding hell is often that of a consuming fire. It's called, for example, in a couple of passages we'll see later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14 and also in Revelation 20, the devil and the false prophet and those who are not in, whose names are not written in the book of life according to uh, the latter part of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, they're cast away into the lake of fire. And that language is used by our Lord often in the Gospels. There's a, there's a very influential book written by an, a man, uh, Edward Fudge. It's an interesting name, Fudge. But the book is entitled, The Fire That Consumes. Think of, if you were to look at Matthew 3 in the language of our Lord in verse 12, he speaks of the separation between the wicked and the righteous, the just and the unjust. What becomes of the unjust is they are burned up in the same way in which the fire consumes the chaff and all that remains is the wheat. So it's very similar to the first argument. Just as the language destruction suggests the cessation of the being of something, it ceases to be, so also what does fire do? There's no remainder. It, if you press the imagery of the lake of fire, what do you have? You have the annihilation, so it is argued, of the wicked. The third objection is that in a passage like Matthew 25, 46, where our Lord speaks of the destiny of the goats on his left, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What if the eternal punishment is understood as eternal in the sense not of experience, that is, that the wicked continue to have some kind of existence in bodies that have participated or been given uh, in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, a kind of unending being, Rather than thinking of an unending experience of God's just displeasure, think of it being eternal in the sense of result. If you play with the imagery of the destruction of something or the consumption in the sense of being consumed through fire of someone, which leads to their annihilation, it's eternal, the punishment, in the sense that it has a, an effect that is everlasting, right? That will never be changed. They will never enter into through some kind of divine act of bringing them back again into existence once annihilated. Therefore, the eternality of hell is an eternality or an ongoing effect, but not an ongoing experience. I don't know if that is clear to you. I hope it's clear. Those are three biblical objections. The theological objections go like this. The first one is very popular. God is a loving God. 
It's incompatible, incongruent, incommensurate with God's being loving that he should purpose and bring into effect a consequence where some of the human race fallen in Adam remain outside of the reach of that love. You may remember a year or so ago a fairly well-known preacher in these, actually in this neighborhood, western Michigan, by the name of Rob Bell, wrote a book, Love Wins. Now, there's a more theological book that was written in the previous generation by a fellow by the name of Nels Ferre. He made the same argument. It's a common argument. It's incompatible with what we know of God's great love, his compassion, his mercy. He's a God slow to anger, abounding in love, that we could contemplate God willing and choosing to consign some of those who bear his image, who are fallen in Adam, though perhaps unbelieving and impenitent, to such a fearful and ultimate outcome under his justice and wrath. It's incompatible with God's love. The second theological argument is it's not just. The punishment is disproportionate to the crime. We are finite, limited creatures. We have few days and years to live, and whatever fearful sins or offenses we may commit in the short span of this little day that is your in my life, the psalmist says it's like a hand's breadth, it can be measured easily, anybody who can count to ten can count four score years and gain some wisdom. Uh, How could our few years and even the fearful things we might do in sinning against God and against others who bear his image possibly be a sufficient basis for a penalty or a punishment that has no end. Justice demands that the crime be punished by way of a corresponding penalty, lest it be an injustice. We all know if somebody commits a petty crime, a misdemeanor, you were to throw him away into prison for life, that would be a disproportionate, unjust sentence. And on the other hand, we become rather enraged that justice has not been done when a terrible offense has been committed, maybe uh, horrible murders against folk who have not done one any injury for no obvious reason, that demands a much more severe penalty. So it's out of accord with justice. The last objection is, what about the possibility that were the traditional doctrine of hell to be true, doesn't this leave us at the end of the day, in a manner of speaking, with a story that doesn't end entirely well? It's a kind of aesthetic, would be like a tapestry that had some loose threads at some place in the beautifully embroidered tapestry. Or it would be like something that mars the beauty of a a landscape painting. Would it not be the case, were hell to be what you say it is, that the ultimate outcome and issue of the realization of God's purposes in history would leave us with some loose threads, to put it mildly, or to put it more soberly, with something unreconciled 
sinners in relationship to God, living forever under a never-ending justice and penalty on account of their sin. Those are the objections. And you may be saying, well, Dr. Venema, you're spending a lot of time tonight on setting us up for and presenting all of the objections. Well, I'm doing that on purpose. You may say, well, it's probably just because you take too much time to get to the point. But no, I'm doing it on purpose. You have to feel, as it goes to my quiet point earlier on, that we don't give it much attention other than very easily affirming in order to maintain our orthodox credentials the doctrine of eternal punishment. But you have to not just feel, you have to sense the weight of these considerations and to test them very carefully by the standard of Scripture before we in some kind of glib, superficial, unthinking, and casual way. There's nothing about the doctrine of hell that permits us to be casual, to be glib, to be a little too quick to speak, and not a little slow to listen carefully and submissively to what God says in his word. And so that's part of my interest at this point. But let's turn to the main uh, burden of what I'm going to say this evening, which is uh, how do we respond to these objections? I'm going to approach the first or deal with the first of the biblical objections. I give on the bottom of page three in my notes a whole variety of these passages where the language of destruction is used to describe what becomes of those whom Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or who, in a very familiar passage, think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. That's in that category of passage that speaks of what becomes of the unbelieving who don't obtain life through Christ, they perish. My argument would be, this is an argument, if this is all we had to go on, might possibly be plausible, but it isn't all that we have to go on, so we have to keep that in mind right up front, but more particularly, it's an argument that's too fast you will find that the language employed and the term most commonly used for destruction in these passages is often used as a synonym for that which is ruined, not that which goes out of existence. Think of the parables well known to us of the lost coin and the lost son in Luke 15. You say, well, what's that have to do with our question? Well, the word used there is a form of the very word used by our Lord and other New Testament writers for that perishing or that destruction that becomes of the wicked. They're ruined in the sense of lost. They're ruined in the sense of no longer able to fulfill their appropriate purpose. Not ruined in the sense that they cease to be. Now, this is a very homely example I acknowledge. Uh, But you can put something in the washer and things go awry and the prom dress is quote-unquote ruined. I will not wear it or have my daughter wear it to the prom because it's, you know, it's some of the uh, dye has been messed up and mixed together and it, it looks a mess. It's ruined. It's destroyed. It's no longer suitable for its appropriate purpose. It doesn't cease to be. 
You could use another very simple analogy. You could have a car wreck, and the car, too, is uh, a wreck. It doesn't cease to be. You can still tell it's a car. It has four tires. It looks the part of a car, but it's no longer functional for that purpose for which it was first fashioned. Now, in a manner of speaking, that's true of the wicked. They don't enjoy the flourishing of life as God intended it in communion with God and in communion with others who bear God's image in the new heavens and the new earth. They are undone. They are lost. They are become ruined, a disfigured version of what they were by God's creative design first made to be. That's not the same thing as suggesting that they go out of existence. I can slip in a little advertisement for a very unusual book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's an allegory. It's not to be taken literally. It's not intended to be C.S. Lewis's uh, fevered imagination about what heaven and hell will be like. By the way, the language of the great divorce is precisely to express that at the end of the day, there is an ultimate line of demarcation between salvation through Christ and the loss of life in the proper sense of the term, spiritual death in separation from fellowship with God and with others in hell. And what he often does in this particular allegorizing about in the various chapters descriptive, I won't go into the the storyline of the allegory, but what he often does is he represents the believer in the eternal state as solid, dazzling, heavy, weighty, glorious, whereas the wicked in hell are ghost-like figures. They're a shadow of what it means to be truly human. They have a faint reminiscence, resemblance of what it was once to have borne God's image and be a living creature in God's world, but in hell... They're ghost-like, shadowy, and they uh, consistently live up to their, and this is the point I'm getting at, they're ruined, their non-flourishing form of existence. They prefer and never cease to prefer their shadow-like existence under the judgment and wrath of God than to own up to the fact that the only life that is worth living is life in fellowship with God and those who are God's. Hell, as he represents it, is a place where the lock is on the inside of the door and none of its occupants have any interest of unlocking the door and exiting their sorry state in order to find through Christ fellowship with the living God and those who are gods. Or another way of putting it is those who would not, through faith in Christ, say to God in this life, your will be done. To them, God says, everlastingly, in the eternal state, the scriptures call the lake of fire hell, 
then let your will be done. Your unwillingness to acknowledge who you are before God, your creator, and what it took through the work of Christ to find communion again with me and with all those who are mine, you will receive precisely what you have through your disobedience and impenitence and willful rejection of the living God. You shall receive what you yourself have desired. Tune in next week as Dr. Venema continues his assessment of the doctrine of hell, looking at the imagery of fire and the language of eternity. And then he'll answer arguments that state that the doctrine of hell is incompatible with what we know of the love and justice of God, and that this doctrine mars the perfection and glory of the eternal state. You can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.